I'm going to steal that example. That's a really good one. <laughs> Did you just come up with that off the top of your head? Off the top of my head. Damn, dude. <laughs> nice one, Johan. Uh, okay, so totally agreed. Hi, I'm Samuel from User Onboard. And I'm Johan, also from User Onboard. And today, our episode's theme is what is value paths and why should I care? And if you happen to have caught the last episode, we started by talking about how the podcast was originally branded uh, under the auspices of self-serve revenue and how we've been working on a growth framework that internally we've been calling value paths. Um, and we thought that if we could couch it in a context of self-serve revenue, it would help uh, as, a, as a way to, to translate our, our, our thoughts to uh, within a context that made more sense for people. But what we found was that self-serve revenue wasn't a, an inherently super meaningful term for many, many people. And so we decided, let's just call it by what we call it. And so we're just calling it value paths and we're moving forward with that as the context instead. Uh, and we begin with what value paths is. Right. What is value paths itself? Value paths is a growth framework that you and I have been working on for the last few years where there's an emphasis placed much more on user outcomes than the design emphasis being placed on product features and characteristics. Is that, is that a fair high level summary? Yes, fully agreed. Um, can I follow up with a question? I love questions, of course. <laughs> aren't product features, um, aren't products already accounting for user outcomes at the moment? How are they thinking about outcomes differently right now? How are they in, this, in, in the sense of like traditional product management and traditional UX looking at the software and software user fit issue differently than we are? Is that the question? Yes. Yes, that's the question. So the, the contrast that I, would, that I would draw here would be that in traditional user experience design, it is always, uh, it, th there, there are, to be totally blunt, I think a lot of times empty gestures toward the value that users can get out of a product or the outcomes that a user could derive from product usage but are not really serious about actually delivering those particular outcomes. So where in traditional methods, you have things like personas and user journeys, where the user's goals and the value that they're getting out of the product is all kind of murky and hand wavy, where maybe different personas have different goals, but are you really actually tracking in your product? how many people who are seeking that particular outcome are actually getting there? And are you tracking whether that outcome has any kind of correlation with people being better customers, either having a higher LTV or lower churn percentage or things along those lines? Kind of the same concept there. But um, generally speaking, are you, are you understanding the causal uh, motivations within the person's psychology or their the context of their situation that's driving them to use your product and what those outcomes that they're seeking your help with attaining are so that you can align your product experience around 
the attainment of them as reliably as possible, rather than aligning your product experience around being a product. Right. And, and approaching it in this way means making some fundamental changes for how you see your product to begin with. I imagine so. I think that a lot of times people, when they think of, you could, you could, you could say some sort of hallmark card platitude, like, you know, user delivering value to our customers is our number one goal or, or our, our company's uh, growth is, is driven by delivering user value. Uh, which like, if, if you said that in, in like a, conference talk, I don't think anybody's going to stand up and call you a liar. It sounds like a pretty plausible kind of thing. But at the same time, if you look at how we approach product from a research standpoint, how we approach product from a design standpoint, how we approach product from an analytics standpoint, those are, are really not diving into a rigorous study of which outcomes are actually taking place and which are being are desired most frequently and, and which of those outcomes correlate most closely with revenue, uh, et cetera. I think that instead we like to focus on the quote unquote thing that we're making, which for a software company, they might think of their offering as being a mobile app or a website or, or a SaaS offering or something along those lines. But what you're saying, I think, <laughs> way back when you were talking, <laughs> apologies for this rant, but uh, what I think that where you're getting at was that you're you're looking at the offering that you provide to your customers in a fundamentally fundamentally different way. If you think that your offering and your value is access to your product, versus if you think of your offering and your value as a reliable means for attaining the results that you're seeking. It's it's a very very different paradigm. Right. What you're building is a way. What you're building is a path. Um and the product is just one of the many things on that path. Um between one of the examples you use all the time is making pancakes. Getting from no pancakes to having pancakes is a path that requires that requires a whole bunch of different um, objects, uh, skills, right. actual physical places, and to if you're making if you're in the business of making pancake mix to think even for one second that with pancake mix, you're able to get people from having no pancakes to having pancakes, that's just wrong. So the idea being that in our software metaphor here, the users or the customers of the pancake mix don't get value from the pancake mix inherently. The characteristics of the pancake mix that make it valuable are only assessed within the context of how well it turns into pancakes in the end, if that's what you're using the pancake mix for, which would be a would be an operating assumption, I would think, for a pancake mix company. So the idea being that the pancake mix company's expertise doesn't need to be in creating the world's best pancake mix or like the platonic ideal of all of the characteristics that make the best pancake mix. What they really want to do is make a process of arriving at pancakes 
as straightforward as possible and provide the user with the expertise and resources that they need to be able to pull that uh, sequence of, of changes off. You got to take the pancake mix and then mix it with water and then it becomes batter and then you got to stir the batter around and then you got to pour the batter onto a hot griddle, but which you had to heat previously, uh, which usually means turning on the stove. There's just a million different things. You got to flip the pancake, all these different things that you got to do to get to just having turning pancake mix into pancakes. And in, in the software world, I think that we get overly caught up on wanting to make the finest, best pancake mix and really uh, neglect the pancakes that are resulting from that pancake mix instead. Fair? Right. Yeah, that's fair. And, you know, for, for you folks sitting at home. Um, or wherever you are. You could be uh, on the commute. You could be biking. We are we are not prescribing that you have to only listen to this at home. But wherever, where home or wherever, yeah, home or wherever you are, um, if you have been thinking about customer outcomes and customer value, and these are familiar terms to you, you you have to ask yourself the question of what that actually means. Like to what depth does that thinking go? And recognizing the process is a huge part of this. So to what extent do your uh, company systems, to what extent do your business systems recognize the context and situations that users are bringing to your product and the context and situations that help them recruit the product into making outcomes that they care about happen. Yeah, you wanna sync up your product states with the user states, and you wanna recognize what kind of situation they're in and be able to anticipate what kind of situation they're trying to recruit your expertise into helping them attain and align your experience around helping them do that. In the same way that you would look at your conversion funnel and say, well, we're getting this many signups that turn into this many trials that convert into this many new customers and we retain them for X long or whatever. You can think of it in the same way, but think of it from the user's perspective, where if you're the pancake mix company, how many people are we losing at the step where you make the batter? How many people are we losing at the step where you pour the batter onto the griddle? How many people are we losing at the step where you flip the pancake? So on and so forth. And you wanna see that all the way through so that you can diagnose the quote unquote conversion funnel of the user's pursued outcome that is driving the relevance of this entire engagement. And it can have outsized impact on business value too. That's, that's the point of this. The point of this is not to think of user value in a vacuum. It's to tie user value and business value together. So for example, if you, by, as Samuel said, by tracking these different steps that from the user's perspective, they're going through to actually get pancakes. Um, if you discover, for example, that a majority of the people who pick up your pancake mix uh, don't have spatulas at home, if you sold your pancake mix with a spatula, there'd be a huge number of people now equipped to actually get the results that they, rec that they recruited you into their lives for. I'm going to steal that example. That's a really good one. <laughs> 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 Did you just come up with that off the top of your head? 
off the top of my head. Damn, dude. <laughs> <laughs> nice one, Johan. <laughs> uh, okay, so totally agreed. Uh, I think the spatula example is is a, a really good one because you're you're basically saying we are now selling to we are expanding our market beyond people who already own spatulas. Any right. anybody who doesn't have a spatula already, maybe they're camping, maybe whatever. If you want to expand your market and you're saying, okay, you're we are only letting you into our via uh, into our club through the front door of our with the velvet rope or whatever. Only, you you got to have a spatula in order to be our customer. Or or you can make some subtle product changes. Maybe part of the cardboard box is perforated and it pops out, and that would be a really terrible spatula, but something like that, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? Right, right, right. But there right. another crucial component to this, uh, because I imagine that people listening, wherever they may be, are thinking, this sounds kind of like jobs to be done. Like I, people, people, there's been a little bit of snake oil in that realm. Do we really need another named framework? What's the, what's the new idea here really? And I would say that the contrast, we've already contrasted value paths from traditional UX and traditional product management. Um, and the way that I would contrast it from jobs to be done, if people are familiar with that, we we should probably talk about jobs to be done in depth at some point, but I don't think that time is now. If you already are familiar with jobs to be done, I would say that the distinction is that jobs assumes that there's a product and that you are trying to find the compelling contexts in which that product is hired into different jobs. And a lot of times when I see jobs to be done put into practice, there might be some research, but it's very consumption oriented and it's really focused on the point at which people decide to become customers and not so much focused on how do you troubleshoot the entire process of actually fulfilling the job, which is kind of ironic to me, but that's really where ValuePass focuses is saying, we can just, since we have digital software, we can track how far people are making. Like if you're making pancake mix, you don't know how many people you're losing at the flip the pancake stage. But if you are offering a, a digital product, you know exactly where your cohorts are falling off the most and churning out the most from one step to another to another. All of that is just information that's just sitting there. So to not even be looking at it, which I would say the vast majority of companies currently are not, um, doesn't make a lot of sense, especially if these are uh, powerful methods are only really being leveraged by gigantic corporations like Facebook or whatever to try to screw you out of all of your attention and sense of empathy for people or whatever. So <laughs> no offense to Facebook. Well, I, I guess a little offense to Facebook, but like not the, I don't know. That was, I, I shouldn't have said that, but anyway, it, roughly correct. Yeah, roughly correct. And there's just one small thing I would add. Um, Jobs to be done, the way I've experienced it, says there are things that you can control and there are things that you can't control. But keeping the reason that people are coming to you in mind will help you execute the things that you can control better. And one of the things that you can control is the product. So if you think about the reason people are using the product, you can build a better product. But what value parts is bringing to the table is that there's really no dis there's really no distinction between the things you can control and the things you can't there's just the process and the more you understand the causal lines between the process the more you can design for the process rather than just making a better product 
like adding a spatula right. to the pancake box doesn't change the quality of the pancake mix. It just adapts to the process a little bit better. It's, it makes it fit into the timeline more seamlessly. Right, exactly, exactly. You're, and I think that's a good way of summarizing it, whether we're talking about jobs to be done or traditional product design approaches or things along those lines, that really what ValuePass focuses on more than anything else is a distinguishing from designing within terms of space, like how wide, what's the aspect ratio of the rectangles and are we using this sort of grid layout or these final wireframes or what does the main navigation look like? All of the spatial uh, sort of 2D or 3D kind of characteristics of the product really de-emphasizes those and really emphasizes the time side of things. We're not as concerned about the spatial elements. We're more concerned about what is the sequence of actions that needs to take place in order for the user's original intents to be fulfilled and how valuable are those different intents and how reliably are we delivering on those intents uh, rather than how can we use this as inspiration to come up with a better composition of rectangles or whatever that might be. Fair? Right. Fair. And how granular, how granular can your support get? You know, because at the moment, if you have three steps between um again you know going back to the pancake example if you're seeing the process between not having pancakes to having pancakes is three steps like going to the store one step picking up pancake mix second step actually making the pancakes third step you wouldn't be wrong but you just you wouldn't be right either because there are so many invisible steps between each of those that you're not accounting for so the hidden spatulas Hidden spatulas, yeah. So the yeah. more granular you can get with your support, the better your, um, the better you're actually equipping the users as they go through this process of making pancakes. Right, and and I guess that's where we would also take issue with like traditional user journeys, where it's like a poster of like the top six things that the use that the company wants the user to do, and it's like sort of. A lot of times that that format is criticized for being overly simplistic and company centric or or wish wishful thinking, I guess. So to instead of using that as inspiration to go make better compositions of rectangles, use that as the framework to dive deeper into all the nooks and crannies of what is really involved in pulling that process off. Right, because every time you think it's a two-step process, it's actually a 10-step process. And there are eight steps that you're not seeing right now that have to be performed. And if you leave it up to the user, bad idea. Anytime that you're like, up to the user, they will figure this part out. That's what you want to avoid. You want to be filling in those gaps with support. All right, so I got to put a close to this conversation because we have not even gotten to our main points yet. So I anticipate this will be a, a long episode either way, but... In, in interest of listener service, let us move on to our exchanging of the prominent concepts. Cool. And thus far, two episodes in, you have been the first concept offerer both times. Would you like to kick us off again? Yes. You should care about value paths if there's a disconnect in your company between user value and business value. One thing we've noticed 
and this has just been confirmed um, a number of times as I've talked to a large percentage of you um, as a part of the growth research we were doing recently, is that business value is like a C-level consideration and user value, like the granular, what should the screen look like for users to actually get value is, uh, is a practitioner, individual contributor kind of consideration. And there's a huge disconnect between the metrics that uh, teams and individual contributors focus on and metrics that um, the C-suite or the board focuses on. So but, and should... and also that maybe maybe some shaky logic as far as the causality between the two as well, like like right. for example, if you had an invoice sending app and you you knew that user value came in the form of people successfully sending invoices, those invoices getting paid, understanding the different reasons why people are trying to get paid or the different conditions in which they're trying to get paid more quickly or whatever, those would all be value path centric considerations. But what we see in the wild is they're not thinking about it in terms of like, how can we get more users to this very specific outcome that we understand inside and out? And more like, how do we just keep mashing users into our product via engagement hacks? And how can we bring up our day 20 retention? Even if there's like no demonstrable correlation between day 20 retention and revenue other than the fact that obviously the people who stick around longer are more likely to become customers. Right. So that logic notwithstanding, if teams uh, who are focused on engagement are not thinking about revenue, that's a huge disconnect. That's a huge gap because if the company cares about revenue, everybody should be thinking about revenue and not just hoping that revenue will happen if they can get their engagement numbers up. Completely agreed. So, so that's one big reason to care about value paths. Should we talk about how value path solves this problem? Please. Okay. So one of the big reasons I've heard for revenue to, you know, not trickle down to the team level is actually there are two reasons. One, it's kind of a lagging indicator. So revenue is you revenue is, you know, you uh -huh. don't know whether your product efforts have resulted in more revenue until much later, until users have had a chance to experience those product changes and then you can track those and then you can track the impact of those product changes on revenue, sometimes even months down the line. Okay. And what we mean when we say that value paths is a method for doing and whether you're tracking outcomes and how you're aligning business outcomes and user outcomes is that value paths turns revenue from a lagging indicator into revenue as a leading indicator. Completely agreed, Johan. I am glad that we started off with that point. I think that's a good one to kick things off with. Okay, over to you, Samuel. My, one, my top reason or one of my top reasons for caring about value paths is because I am not saying this to be scandalous and I am not saying this to, to just be dismissive toward the work that has been put in to build the foundation of how we approach design in general. But to be completely honest, 
as a user experience designer with over a decade of user experience, experience, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> um, I think it's kind of a waste of time, to be honest. I think that thinking of your company's offering as a product is a really limiting paradigm to begin with, uh, as we've already covered. And I think that that user experience kind of similar to the aspect of jobs to be done that you were talking about just a moment ago regarding how the product is kind of assumed uh, and, and assumed to be not something fully under the company's control or that not the, not the most flexible lever to be, to be pulled, I guess you could say. Um, where I think that value pass really questions that and says, ultimately the users are the relevance and value of the product is only relevant within the context of the outcome that the user is trying to pursue in a given session or with their relationship with the product overall. Uh, And that if you assume that the product is the, is the value you're always wrong because the value is not determined. Value is not something that you can stuff into a thing. And, you know, now we've made it five times more valuable. Like you can't, you can't make a product more valuable because value is, is determined by the beneficiary, not by the provider of the resources. Um, it's the person it's in the person's mind, how they evaluate, how valuable the experience is. I started a mailing list with MailChimp and it grew and I was really happy with how it worked. Or I started a mailing list with MailChimp and it didn't grow and, and it was a waste of my time. The, the, those people might be experiencing the exact same product, but arriving at very different experiences. And really it's that that we're in the business of. So to use a quick example, uh, my son, uh, I, I was excited as a, as a father to uh, teach my son how to ride a bike. And, and when I was a kid, we would use training wheels where you uh, screw these, these kind of additional wheels onto your bike so that you don't have to figure out the balancing part. You can just figure out the pedaling and steering part. And then when you're done with, the, with those, off come the training wheels and then you learn the balancing part. And that usually involves falling down a bunch of times and getting scraped elbows and putting ice on it and things like that. And I was anticipating that being the case as, as uh, with my son. And instead, he had a balance bike instead of getting training wheels, which is a to- totally different configuration where instead of it being a bike with additional wheels added to it, it's a bike with the pedals removed. And so instead of focusing on teaching the, the kid how to uh, 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 pedal and steer and then learn how to balance the child learns how to balance and steer and then learns how to pedal. And it was the funniest thing because as soon as we put him on a real bike that had pedals, I was ready to be following after him and, and helping clean the, the gravel out of his cuts and stuff. And he just took off. He just started pedaling away. And like, it was the easiest thing for him to add that one additional component to his overall physical recipe of, of being able to ride a bike and there were no scrapes or anything needed. And so I say all of this to, to draw this back to the idea of traditional UX, traditional product management. If you're working at a training wheel company, 
and you're you do user experience research and you realize that people shouldn't be that people should be learning how to balance before they learn how to pedal how do you incorporate that into the features of the training wheels you don't because th the training wheels insist that there is a different process to making pancakes in, in the form of learning how to ride a bike and, and it's paying attention to this to the order of the steps and being present with the right resources at the right time that's most important rather than trying to make one really, really, really ultra good resource for every possible use case. Right. It's your, your offering is in a sense, your construction of the path. Yes. Right. And but the, you're not trying to make a really good path. You're trying to generate something. You're trying to more reliably generate outcomes. The, the value of the path is only valuable insofar as it generates the outcome. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. And that was a really great example of how Thank you so much. Learning, <laughs> how <laughs> learning to ride a bike doesn't necessarily have to be this, um, this process of cuts and bruises and falling down. Just by making a small switch up in the timeline, it results in, um, in better outcomes faster right and so again it's not a spatial concern it's a temporal concern you're you're trying to you're coordinating the timeline not coordinating the arrangement of of any given asset cool number three number three okay so one big reason on my list to care about value parts is if you're even a little bit uncomfortable with correlation. Um, it seems like correlation is the best we can do in SaaS at the moment, you know, because user behavior is not something we can control. The best we can do is kind of nudge users to take the behavior that we want. This is the traditional thinking, by the way. The best. Yeah, I was about to is... say this is this is <laughs> evil mustache Johan talking right now. <laughs> <laughs> so the traditional way of thinking is. Uh, we can't control what users do, but we can nudge them in this way and that. And the more we nudge them in a particular direction, the more they'll do the things that we want them to do. And we know that certain things um, are correlated with revenue. So if we nudge them towards those things, then we will get more revenue at the end of the day. Is, is that a fair uh, nutshell version of the traditional thinking of correlation and nudges at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that the paradigm that people are working within is that they think that the their value proposition is selling different levels of access to their product, where like pancake mix is not valuable unless if it results in pancakes. And software is especially not valuable. You could at least take the pancake mix and take it back to the store with your receipt and get a refund or go sell it on the street to some other idiot who's going to take the, the terrible pancake mix off your hands. But if you have a software account, what are you doing? What's the street value of that? You're not going to sell that on Craigslist. So like you're, what, you're, what you have is valued at nothing until outside of what you get out of the software. And, and ultimately, if, you're, if your software company is realizes that it's in the business of helping users get outcomes and not in the business of offering, quote unquote, high quality software or access to high quality software, the, the sooner it is in tune with the real 
driving impulses that are actually generating the behaviors that result in customerhood and subscription payments and the things that come with that. Right. So if that resonates at all, and you're uncomfortable with the picture of correlations that you're drawing between engagement and revenue, then value parts is for you because it is very focused on causal lines and doing away with this whole picture of correlation, you know, because, um, because it's true that user behavior is something you can't control, but it's also true that users have arrived at your product because they are seeking a particular outcome. And if you can really design for that outcome, you can, um, this is gonna sound strange, but you can control user behavior because you understand what's driving users to begin with, if that makes any yeah. sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I would say from a paradigm standpoint, another big difference is that the, the, your, the interest or the goal is never to control the user's behavior or to coerce the user into doing what you want. The goal is to create a, an offering that is so good at helping them get what they want that it's a no-brainer for them to generate the value that you're looking for them to reciprocate. You want to make it a really good deal for them. A lot of times uh, companies will come to us and say, like, we want to generate habits. We want, we want to, you know, get our users hooked, so to speak. And I think that if you are not paying attention to the basic performance of your value delivery mechanism, and, you, and, and if you're not working from a really clear idea of what kind of outcomes are driving your users to become users and to become customers, especially, you should, the last thing you want to be doing is getting people addicted to some product that you haven't even really tuned yet. The, the whole idea is, uh, is to identify where you're losing people along the way so that you can scale your offering even better. And if you are trying instead to get people addicted to a product that's not useful to them, uh, I think that that's just going to be a significantly worse strategy. Right. There's there's this, um, if I can bring in a thought experiment here. Um, no thought experiments, please. <laughs> Imagine you're a lawyer and um, uh, you're trying to figure out how this woman, who's responsible for this woman named Colleen's death. Um, this is imagine, weirdly specific. <laughs> weirdly. <laughs> Just so... <laughs> Imagine, imagine two situations. One, um, Colleen had a friend, Ben, and Ben poisoned Colleen, Colleen's gin. Um, that's a clear-cut case, right? You'd say, you'd be able to draw a clear causal line there. You'd know Ben's responsible for Colleen's death. Imagine another situation, though. Imagine Ben poisons Colleen's gin, but she notices it. And she heads out to the store to buy to buy herself a new bottle of gin. And on her way back from the store, she gets hit by a car. Is okay. Ben still responsible for Colleen's death? What's your take? My take is that, okay, the point here isn't to <laughs> have an answer. <laughs> the okay. point here isn't to have an answer, but the, what the thought experiment encourages is thinking about the difference between 
um, between direct and indirect causes. In one case, Ben was a direct cause of Colleen's death. In the other case, he poisoned Colleen's gin and that set off a chain of events that resulted in Colleen's death. But would you actually like throw the handcuffs around him? It's difficult. It's difficult to draw that conclusion. It's difficult to convict Ben based on the circumstances of Colleen getting hit by a car. So I feel like revenue works a lot in the same way, you know, in the uh, sense that let me let me let me make sure I'm following you just to just to be sure, though. So okay. what you're what you're saying is in that murder scenario, a there is more of a direct cause effect uh, parallel than in murder scenario B. Yes, yes. And, and so you, I guess, would you say that that you would see Ben as a contributing factor either way, but just less of a contributing factor or, or a equal of a contributing factor to just a bigger, more complex unfolding of events? Yes. In one case, um, it's the difference between um, Colleen's death was caused by Ben and Ben killed Colleen. In one case, you can clearly say Ben killed Colleen. In the other, in the other case, the best you can say is Ben contributed to Colleen's death mm -hmm. because she was hit by a car. And how, how this ties back to software is that we want to be figuring out what makes revenue. We want to be figuring out what revenue is a direct result of. How do we get and, the poison in there nice and good? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I used a dark example here, and that led yeah. us down a strange path. But, I think that evil mustache had an effect on you. <laughs> but my point stands. You know, when you think about you know engagement, you're thinking about an indirect cause. You're hoping that more engagement will set off a chain of events that at some point will result in revenue. But what you want to be doing instead is figuring out what makes revenue happen. Yeah, as we say, focus less on how much money you're making and focus more on how you're making money. Right. All right, well, that is a convenient segue to point number four, if you, uh, if you yield the floor. I yield the floor. All right, so convenient segue being that Another reason to care about value paths is that your early churn, the, the, the amount of people that you lose early in your relationship with them or early in their account having status is way worse than you probably think it is. A, a lot of people who have not taken a deep dive into their retention metrics might look at a high level VC sort of metric like net churn, which just says from one time period to another, let's say one month to another, how many people of the people who you already had, how many of those people did you lose? Either in terms of headcount, like the number of users, or in terms of revenue in the form of how much subscription money just walked out the door, right? Right. And generally, this net churn number is usually supposed to be hopefully somewhere in the two to three percent range. If you're if you're down to five percent, that's not a great 
looking that's not a great outlook uh, or you would want to run your business differently based off of that if you can get to one percent or zero or or the fabled fantasy lands of net negative churn where your your user base is actually growing over time um that's the ideal but either way people churn at very different times in their relationship with you so if you're looking at net churn for the month of august how many people did we have in august who we kept into september and you're including your entire user base from people who just walked in the door five minutes ago to people who are have been customers of yours for nine years they're very they're the the likelihood of their of them churning are very very different and generally speaking the the uh net churn number masks that complexity and it just gives you the overall performance of how big of a pile of users you have at any given moment rather than giving you insight into the uh the critical early stages where you are just hemorrhaging the most amount of people um and it's it's kind of true at like several different levels of scale so like if you look at monthly revenue for example if you if you're if you have a subscription plan and you have people who are paying monthly versus yearly or whatever if you look at the at how many people you keep from month one to month two it's a bigger drop off from one month one to month two than month two to month three. And then it's an even smaller drop off from month three to month four. And then it's even smaller from month four to month five. And then eventually, hopefully it either planes out or turns into what's called a smile chart where you have net negative churn and you're actually growing those users after you lost a bunch of them up front. But even if you zoom in further and you say, okay, well, just going from sign up to paying the first month, where are we losing the most amount of people? usually it's in whatever the early steps are so if you have a series of steps where you have people confirm their email address and enter their credit card and invite uh three colleagues or whatever the sequence of things that you have people fill out a sales survey that somebody stuck into the onboarding experience three years ago and people forgot to pull out whatever all that stuff is you're losing people at every step and as a general rule of thumb you're losing way more people in the early steps than you are in the later steps. And so to try to patch the holes in just hemorrhaging out the uh, people that you would pro you're probably not even super aware of if you're paying attention to your entire user base whereas you would be painfully aware of it and hopefully inspired to do something about it if you were paying attention to it on a cohort by cohort level looking at it from each individual early step to the next. That is a great point. Johan, back over to you. We have actually covered everything that I wanted to say. There are a few more on my list, but um, I think there was some overlap between our points, and we have naturally covered them. Or save them for the lightning round, more granular <laughs> stuff. Right. Any Anything, anything on your list left? I do. I have one more, um, one more big point to make. Okay. Why should you care about value pass? One reason would be that your users deserve better. And um, I, I don't I don't say that to to insult or offend. Um, I know everyone's trying their hardest and and I, I genuinely appreciate that. But at the same time, I think that the the foundations on which we are making product decisions are a little bit more emperor has no clothes than we're really willing to be real about. 
And <clears throat> the, I think that not only does that lead to us wasting our time professionally, uh, making higher quality, uh, improving the user experience of training wheels rather than just pivoting into making balance bikes, for example. Um, I, I think in a, in, in a similar way, our, our users are really getting kind of screwed here too, or it's a waste of their time as well. Uh, because if you think of it, again, from the perspective that every time someone uses something, they are seeking a particular situational outcome, then it would make sense that our apps should try to care at all about guessing what that specific outcome is so that the app can align its experience around helping the user get there. There's just, if the user is pursuing that outcome, there's no reason why you would want to give them the same one-size-fits-all experience that everybody else gets. So on a tactical level, we're talking, we're almost talking about personalizing by intent and like customizing experiences and having different segments, you know, segmenting your, your user experience in a, in a way. But it's not just the question of getting users to the outcomes that through your own conversion funnel and, and making sure that they generate value for your business, which is a completely fair concern, but also taking genuine interest in upholding your end of the, the value proposition. If you're promising that people will get to work from a laptop on the beach with a coconut in their hand with an umbrella inside it or whatever, like, are you actually creating an end-to-end -end process that gets people? Are you delivering the coconut? Are you putting the, the, the umbrella in it? Or what is it that you actually do and how good are you at actually producing the outcomes that you are good for? And how does a user suss that out? And how does a user tell whether a company is, is wasting their time or, or whether they're not? And, and one example that I really like to give the, uh, is uh, there's an app called Caviar, which is sort of a uh, Uber Eats kind of a restaurant delivery service app. But and fancy? Is that why they call Caviar? No, it wasn't. It, maybe it was a little fancier. I don't know. I, I, that was just the name of it. It just, but, but I remember using Caviar s several years ago, uh, and there was a when I say feature, I'm using the term very loosely. There was a quality of the product, a feature of the product, where when you open the app for the first time, it shows you the different restaurants that you can choose from, and then you can go into the menus and place your order and so on and so forth. But then if you open up the app again later, while your order has been placed, it doesn't show you a list of restaurants. It shows you the status of your order by default. There's a there's a new default screen that it shows you when it your your account is currently in a in an order transaction. Does this make sense? Like the pizza yeah, tracker kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so then contrast that very simple example just of just having any vague idea of what do we know about the user and what is the most relevant stuff we can put in front of them based off of our best guess of what they care about, right? That's that's that I'm holding them up as a as a good example of that. Right. Now we contrast that with an experience that I had with Airbnb, where I booked a, a registration 
And I downloaded the app for the first time on a new phone. And I knew to like pull up the instructions to, to the cabin before uh, I drove out there in case I didn't have cell phone service and wasn't able to get in, didn't get the security code or whatever. So I go to pull up Airbnb's app for the very first time on this new phone. And it knows I sign in as me. I, I do the social sign in, you know, via Google or whatever. I'm, 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 I, it's loading up my account for the first time. And does it show me anything that's related to the listing that I am about to go check in to? Like it knows that I am on the day of check-in. It knows that I have an active listing. It knows that I am so, some physical distance related to the, to the, to the residents that I'm trying to check into. If I open up the app and it knows that I'm within 10 feet of the street address and it's the day of check-in and it's the time of check-in, why would you be showing me restaurants? You should be showing me the pizza tracker. But instead, in Airbnb's case, when I pull it up, it's like, do you, have you ever thought about becoming a host? And it's just like all of this stuff that's totally irrelevant to what I'm trying to do. And it's like, it feels like Airbnb is making like no effort in even just meeting me halfway in getting the help that I need to in order to generate the value of, that the, their offering is supposed to be providing me with. Right. It, and in this case, it's not even an, um, an awareness of outcomes because they are aware of their outcomes. In this situation, it's just a little more acknowledgement of the process that you're in at the moment. Exactly. It's a question, again, like we've talked about, of, of sequencing things in time and understanding what's most relevant to the, to the user at different stages or when the user is in, if the, when their account is in different states and designing for those states rather than designing a single state or solid state product that the user that is a one size fits all experience for all the users who come to it, regardless of what they're trying to do in general or in a given session. Right, because if you make a really good product and you sell access to it, then only the users who are competent find value. Only the users who are okay with um, figuring things out on their own find value, and all the users that aren't drop off, get left by the sure. wayside without support through a process that maybe they're trying to figure out for the first time themselves. Yeah, conversion rate experts uh, is, is a in an organization that I I uh, greatly admire. They're based out of the UK and do conversion rate optimization and. Uh, their their metaphor um, is to to think of your conversion steps as an obstacle course, and at every step in that obstacle course, you're going to see different amounts of people getting tripped up on stuff. But your the steps that you provide are not. It's not like if you turn your onboarding uh, experience from five steps into eight steps, then you've added three steps of value. You've probably subtracted value by making it more complicated. So from that standpoint, I definitely agree. Right. You need to be equipping all your users with things that they need to go through their process to value, uh, to go through the stages of their process to value, um, yeah. rather than just you know, giving the competent ones access to this beautiful tool that you've built. Right.
it's almost like if you imagine the user uh as like a surgeon well you ever see like movies where there's a a, a high tense surgery and the surgeon's like scalpel and they hold out right. their hand and then the assistant <laughs> puts the scalpel in their hand and then they're like gauze and then the the assistant puts gauze in their hand we the products that we create should have a sense of like when the surgeon wants the scalpel and when the surgeon wants the gauze and to give the scalpel when the scalpel is needed and the gauze when the gauze is needed and to not just continue offering like a buffet of options and keep adding more and more quote unquote functionality and features when really it's like you just need help with the thing that you're trying to do that the app really should be able to know. And when we talk about guessing what the user's desired outcome is, we call that desi internally desired triangulation, uh, which is, I guess, kind of cute. But th I mean, your app should give a shit about what its users are trying to do. And it should try, it should try ultimately to be helpful in, 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 in supplementing their experience of, of pursuing that outcome to the highest possible degree. But even, I mean, even just casually having any idea of why you might be pulling up their app at a given moment, like in Airbnb's case, I think would not be a bad place to start. Right. Kathy Sierra summed this up so beautifully when she said, you're not trying to make better cameras, you're trying to make better photographers. Bingo. Yeah. Shout out, Kathy, the OG. <laughs> yeah. And if more people as a user, you know, if more people were invested in my becoming a better photographer, that kind of support would be invaluable. Yeah, it's no brainer. It's you're 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 in uh, uh, you have competition of zero people. Nobody's in the space of actually providing the out like studying the outcomes that people are seeking and designing around even vague patterns there, really. I mean, I guess vague patterns, but to get if you if you want to approach it with any sort of semblance of the scientific method or or just like rigor of curiosity you quickly realize that it's significantly more complicated than it seems on the out end, outer end and that when we're designing products what we're really doing we're looking at compositions of rectangles and saying i don't know maybe the lorem ipsum should be under the under the image instead of above or whatever but what we're doing, the reasons that we come up with these suggestions about the, the 2D space arrangement of the, of the screen state, what we're doing is we're, we're cranking through tons and tons of simulations in our head of, oh, what if somebody who's trying to do this came to this screen? Or what if somebody who's trying to do this came to this screen? And we're just flipping through those like a Rolodex, whether we're aware of it or not, as we're assessing the fit of the arrangement of screen components, but to talk only in terms of screen components and only make vague gestures toward what the users really want is just kind of like inventing like a game of telephone for no reason. Like the, there's nothing, there's no reason to, to, to not be focused on reliably delivering the outcomes that drive people to be profitable customers for you. And really considering the product that you have in place right now to be something that that should not be a sacred cow and should be able to be adapted to any slice of the timeline to to be the best fit 
uh, caviar, uh, don't show restaurants kind of ideas. Right, right. Fully agreed. I just want to remind everyone listening that we're just scratching the surface of all of these concepts here and kind of introducing the idea. And over the next few episodes, we're going to dive into a lot more detail because this isn't just theory for us. This is something we live and breathe in our work at User Onboard. And um, our projects are all executed in a value parts kind of way. So we have a lot more to share. And if any of this sounds vague, it's just temporary. <laughs> Hopefully, I guess. <laughs> or, I mean, if, if anything is vague and we don't have a good answer for it, that we would love to uh, to become aware of that as well. So um, any, any ways that you want to poke and prod or critique this perspective, by all means, have at it. You cannot hurt our feelings. I guess I, I always say that, but I should really just speak for myself. Do you, can criticism hurt your feelings, Johan? Should I just just li limit it to me? No, no, no. I include me in this, Samuel. Because and I mean, technically I, speaking, you could really hurt my feelings, but but we're we're putting on the veneer of, <laughs> of bravery to help put people at ease to provide comments that that genuinely are not going to really ruffle our feathers. So we we love yeah. feedback. Please dig in. And uh, if you were crazy enough to listen to this whole thing, thank you very much for caring and uh, keep fighting the good fight. And we will talk to you soon.